On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nicole. I want to welcome you once again to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we are so glad that you're with us this morning, and we're actually honored that you would choose to spend a few hours of your Sunday morning worshiping with us. We're continuing on in our series, going through um, really this, this topic of anxiety. We're in week four of a seven-week series, so we're about halfway through. And if you're a guest here, what we normally do is we normally go through uh, about 75% of the time we're going through books of the Bible, verse by verse or passage by passage. But every once in a while, usually once or twice a year, we identify a topic or something we feel like is relevant to like jump into and kind of take a break from going verse by verse and, and looking at a topic directly. So that's what we find ourselves in the middle of now. But after this sermon series is over, we'll jump back into a book um, in early October. But let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Father, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful that when I stand up here, whoever's preaching on a topic like anxiety, we don't have to come off with something off the cuff. We don't have to sift through all the things the kind of world tells us um, about anxiety. We can start with your word, and we can start with all the things you have to say about um, about anxiety in the word, and about uh, mental health, and about emotional health, and about the inner life, and why we do the things we do, and all those questions, we can find those in your word, and we're thankful for that. And we're thankful that you've spoken to us, and you've revealed yourself to us in your word. And I pray this morning, as we look at your word, I pray you change us as a result of it. You would change our minds, you would change our hearts, and in, in, in our inner life, and you would change uh, the way we live when we leave this place. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So I want to go back a few weeks just to catch us up to where we are at now um, in, in this topic on anxiety. The first week, we, we defined anxiety and kind of talked about how anxiety, we should see anxiety as an opportunity or as an invitation to come to God. To bring our, the deeper things that are inside of us to God. The second week we looked at how to apply the gospel to anxiety. Or really the, the things under anxiety. Which there, there is always something under our anxiety. Something that's causing it. And then last week we looked at habits or practices. The things we do on a daily basis or a weekly basis. To give us a foundation to be able to be ready for when anxiety strikes. As it will for all of us at some point in time, I believe, or if we find ourselves in the middle of anxiety, to be able to maybe get out of some patterns of thinking and ways of living that we find ourselves in as we are gripped by anxiety. 
in each of these three weeks, we've, we've kind of looked at anxiety through an individualistic perspective, like how does this affect us as individuals? And today we're going to do something a little different. We're going to look at anxiety through relationships. We're going to spend some time looking at how anxiety affects our community, how we relate to one another, and how anxieties can spread from person to first person, almost like a virus. Um, early on in our marriage, um, one of the things, among <laughs> several things we probably struggled with early in our marriage, um, 18 years ago, was our uh, Nicole and I's view of time. And, and uh, we talked about this last night, so I have permission to share um, this story. Um, we approached time differently, and we brought that into our marriage, and we quickly under, like, picked up on this soon. And it didn't take long. For There was an occasion that we kind of were thinking about last night where we were um, in the process of, of trying to get somewhere on time. And I kind of come from the perspective on time that if you're not five minutes early, you're late. And she comes from the perspective of it, it, uh, you kind of show up as close as you can um, to that time that things are supposed to start. But it's okay if you don't. Um, now, I came in thinking I was right. And I was going to change her in this way into marriage. Like, I'm going to change her. But the way I went about doing that was just dumping all of my anxiety and all my fear of man that's wrapped up into being a person that's seen as competent and on time, right? And I was worried that that's going to get taken away. So I I came to her with all this anxiety and hurry, we got to go. And you look at the time and let's do it. What are you doing? You know, all the stuff leading up to us trying to get out the door. And Nicole is the type of person who, uh, it's more about the process, right? She doesn't want to be rushed, right? She's the most pleasant person you'll be around when she's trying to get somewhere because she's not in a hurry. She's not anxious. I'm the opposite, right? I become a little bit of a drill sergeant when that time gets close. I'm commanding. Let's go. Let's do this. What do we need to do? Where's the list, right? And It's a shocker, but my method didn't change her, right? That was not going to change her, right? Um, There are other things I could have done to kind of maybe communicate what my my, my values were in those moments. But kind of the point is, is that we brought some things into the marriage concerning time, more specifically punctuality, that uh, some idolatries on both of our sides that we have to work through. But in that specific situation, I was kind of dumping my anxiety on her, hoping that she would kind of catch it. And this, this one story that we were thinking about last night, we were in the car on our way there, and I was like, you know, boiling and really simmering. And, I, and she was like what, do you, like, what do you want from me, right? Like, what do you want me to do? And I just blurted out, I want you to be mad about being late. Like, I want you to be frustrated. I want you to be, and she's like, why would I want to like make myself be angry about something? That sounds horrible. But I was wanting her to feel something about being late. And so, of course, like wherever we're going, like now she's anxious because I'm anxious. It's spread to her because of my posture and my tone. And then when we get to wherever we're going, it's going to feed the people around us, right? I'm going to show up and I'm going to still be brooding about what just happened in our conversation. People are going to pick up on that. It kind of, people feed off that. Nicole's frazzled and feels like just just everything's in chaos now. And she's not going to be present when she gets to where we're going. And it spreads from really my initial kind of thrust of anxiety to try to get her to change in that moment. And so this happens when two people are in any kind of relationship. Whether you meet for the first time or you're married, the emotions in both people will affect one another. It's the way we work. Anxiety can spread like a virus through our relationships. 
And naturally what often happens is the person who is most anxious is the most powerful person in the relationship. Because the other people in the relationship, often for good motivations, are going to kind of move into the vortex of that person's anxiety and try to start figuring out a way to get that anxiety to go away. And that's often a recipe for just more anxiety in that relationship. And we see this, we feel this naturally. When someone comes into a room that's maybe a smaller room than this, maybe in a house or living room, and they're really upbeat, and you, you, feel, you feed off that, right? You lean into that. You're like, this is, this is, a, this is good energy, right? Uh, when someone comes into a situation, they're angry and they're, they're complaining and they're griping, that's, that you kind of feel that. You're like, that's, that just doesn't seem right. I don't like that. I don't want to be around that. It's the same with anxiety. And you may think, why is this the case? Why does this happen? Well, I think it's because we were made in the image of a relational Trinitarian God that he creates us to relate to one another in community. We're to relate to one another. We're not to live in isolation. But when sin came into the world, fractured the world, affects the world, like we can't just approach relationships like in the Garden of Eden, right? It's different. We, we, we bring in baggage. We bring in idolatry. We bring in these things to all of our interactions with other people, and we can affect one another. Um, newer research in the last 10 years has showed that um, 30% of our neurons in our brain are what are called mirroring neuron, neurons, meaning that they will mirror almost automatically what people around us are doing, especially nonverbal things. So people have done this with smiling. Like if someone smiles at you, 30% of the neurons in your brain are going to kind of want you to smile. It's hard not to smile when you're in the presence of someone who's looking at you and smiling. It's just something we naturally want to do as human beings. And so our aim as followers of Jesus is to be the kind of people who have the presence to stand firm in the midst of other people's anxiety. And vice versa as we live in community. Now this, I realize this area is, it's a little different. It's, it's um, I think it's something as we get into this, we have, we're all going to be able to recognize and we've felt before, but some of the language I'm going to use may be a little bit different from kind of studies and sociology and how people fit together and work. People that I've learned a lot from in this area in the past several years are people like Edwin Freeman, Steve Cuss, Mark Sayers, Jim Harrington. Much, much of what I'm saying today is what these guys, these guys are trying to take anxiety and how it affects each other and see it through a biblical lens. So I want to start um, this morning by looking at a passage that I think really puts forth um, in the scriptures an ideal for Christian community. Like, like this, if there was going to be a, a roadmap for how we relate to one another um, and to people outside of the church, um, this is it. Romans 12, starting in verse 9. I believe outside the Sermon on the Mount, this is the most clear and comprehensive, really, playbook for how we should treat other people. So let's start. Verse 9. This first phrase Paul starts with, he says, let love be genuine. Most commentators think that, like Paul often does, the first thing in the list is sometimes the most important or like an umbrella statement and everything else kind of falls underneath it. And I think that's what Paul is doing here. And notice he doesn't say love. He almost assumes that love's going to be there. He assumes that. And he says, let love be genuine. He qualifies that. He, t- he talks about what kind of love 
should be in place. And he's going to spend the rest of this passage kind of building out and fleshing out what that actually means. He continues, Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. If we just stop there, these are difficult to do in and of themselves. Like this list, you start thinking about how am I going to love people? Like this is a high, high standard. And these are all imperatives. These are, this is Paul after spending 11 chapters in Romans building out this magnificent kind of comprehensive theology in view of God. He, on chapter 12, he immediately almost starts off with, well, here's how that plays out in relationships. Now listen to verse 14. It gets harder. Let's keep going. It says, bless those who persecute you. Think about that. Think about how, how, what he's asking us to do in these things. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. It's difficult. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, or that means proud, but associate with the lowly. Difficult. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It's all. It's not the people that you like. It's not the people that you agree with. It's live, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Think about that for a minute. The last thing we're usually wanting to do to our enemies is feed them, to bless them in that way. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, when we read these commands, these imperatives that Paul's giving the church, we should ask, how in the world do we do this? How in the world do we do it? The main thing, again, is love. He's breaking down how do we love other people people um he's saying and he's saying here especially with that second part of this he's saying even when things aren't natural our flesh the thing that 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 sinful part that we all have in this room that's still remaining in us we want to we don't want to react in that second part of the list the way he's asking us we have a tendency to to not want to love our enemies to not want to bless them to not live peaceably with all to pick and choose who we're going to associate with that's what we're bent to do that's what i'm bent to do but he's saying not to do that. Well, how do we do that? This is extremely difficult. And I think part of this is understanding what's happening underneath the surface in the relationships. And here's where anxiety comes in. Um, it requires, when we think about loving others in a difficult situation or in an emotional pressurized situation, we have to think, not let our emotions take control. We have to think, what is the right thing to do? Love becomes a choice in those ways. We act out of kind of principle and what we see in the scriptures rather than maybe in the moment not feeling the things we want to feel in that moment. Now we pray and hope that our feelings come around to that. But in the moment, sometimes we just have to act on what is right and, let, and allow us to kind of think our way into love 
rather than just feel our way into love when we don't want us to. Now, what I think this, the answer to this is, is something in, in a book called The Leader's Journey that Jim Harrington wrote. He has a list of five things that really define this idea of differentiation or self-differentiation. Throw that slide up. Um, so differentiation or self-differentiation. I just want to read these because this will help us understand, I think, what our goal is underneath the surface. And we're going to see an example from the scriptures here in a moment. Here are five things. I'll just read them real quick. The ability to steer one's own course in the turbulent waters of a living system or relationships. The ability to allow the life and teaching of Jesus to serve as one, one's compass rather than reading everyone else's emotional chart. So being controlled by Jesus and not other people's emotions in a relationship. Being a less anxious presence amid others' anxieties. The ability to take responsibility for one's own emotions and feelings rather than expecting others to deal with them. Right? Deal with our own junk first. Deal with our own inner life first before we kind of want others to deal with that for us. And lastly, the ability to know the difference between thinking and feeling in these high-pressurized situations. Because our, our animalistic brain, kind of part of our brain, our amygdala, wants to take over and wants to react. And we often do that out of emotion instead of stopping and thinking about what's happening in any given situation. Another author says um, self-differentiation is simply knowing where I stop and another person begins. So it's like saying, I'm going to own what I can own in this relationship, but I'm not going to cross the line of what the other person needs to own in the actual relationship. Right? It's called self-differentiation. And, and it's a way that I think the Bible is holding up um, these values and ethical principles um, that require us to be emotionally mature in this way. I go back to Romans 12, like how in the world... Do we live like this consistently if we're not doing work underneath the surface and what causes us to lash out at people or to handle anxiety in a poor way? So now I want to look at Mark 4, the passage that Nicole read for us. I want to see, this is Jesus giving us a real life example, I think, of what self-differentiation looks like. So I'm going to take our time going through this and we'll see kind of how Jesus reacts to this uh, kind of um, emotionally charged situation. Mark 4, verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, he, they, took, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. Now, earlier on in this chapter, um, the beginning of chapter 4, it, Mark has the comment of the, the large crowds gathered around Jesus. So, what it appears is Jesus has spent the day teaching, large crowds were there, a lot of people were around, and they were tired, they were exhausted. So I want you to put yourself in this situation. And Jesus is obviously the front and center, but his disciples were kind of up there with him. They were his followers now, so these, these crowds were also kind of directing their attention on them. They were exhausted, they were tired, and Jesus says, hey, let's get away. Let's go someplace else, kind of get away from the crowds probably to able to, to rest. And um, and, and imagine the, the chaos and the pressure that Jesus and his disciples were probably under at this moment. Verse 37, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. And so now the boat, there, there's a storm comes up. And this, the Sea of Galilee, surrounded by mountains, 
um, these, these quick storms popped up on the sea, um, um, historians tell us. And they were like almost like mini hurricanes. And this was well known in the region. So this was not a shocker to um, somebody who had been out in the boat in the Sea of Galilee. But it was, it was scary. It was terrifying. And remember, that where they're at in Israel, they're like 60 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. So these were not like coastal people. These people weren't like, like fishermen in the Mediterranean Sea. They weren't familiar with the vast open waters. They were kind of familiar with this Sea of Galilee that was much smaller. But these weren't like seafaring people. And even on top of that, back in the day, the, the, the ocean, the water, the deep water um, was very mysterious. Like science hadn't caught up yet to be able to look under the water. So there were myths and legends about what lived under the water and was really terrifying. Like you had to be brave to go out on the open water and be a fisherman. Just this week I read that there was, a, there was possibly a myth um, specifically to the Sea of Galilee that the people who had, who had died in the Sea of Galilee, that at night their ghosts would haunt the lake or the, the, the sea. They would, they, would, they would be out there on the water in, in kind of ghost boats and ghosts. And so there was this mythology surrounding this, which is why in another, the other episode where they're out on a boat, Jesus is walking on the water. Their first uh, response, if you remember, is it's a ghost. And a lot of commentators think it's because of this myth. So there was just a lot of, of fear and the water was scary to them. And this storm comes. They're tired. They're exhausted. They're tired of crowds. And this is where they find themselves. Um, verse 38. But he was in the stern, Jesus, asleep on the cushion. <laughs> Just sleeping like a baby. Right? Jesus in the stern. Doesn't care. Um, sleeping. And this is, the, this is the only time, I believe, that you see Jesus sleeping in the Gospels. And he's probably trying to make a point here to, um, to his disciples. That's probably why he fell asleep. Knew the storm was coming. Probably saying, I'm going to see how these guys react if I go to sleep here. And Mark seems important enough to obviously share it in his gospel, record it in his gospel. Um, and then it says in the, the second half of verse 38, And they, they, the disciples, woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that we are dying right now, Jesus? How dramatic, right? Like, these guys are super dramatic about what's happening here. So look what they're doing, right? They're anxious, right? They're now being unreasonable about their anxiety. It's really unfair to Jesus, right, of, of kind of who he has been up to their, this point for them, what he has shown them up to this point, that they kind of think that this man's just going to let him die in this boat. But they're not thinking clearly here. They're reacting out of their anxiety. They're reacting out of their emotions. They're reacting out of fear. And these writers who look at this really have three kind of um, three main signs or uh, signals that um, there are anxious um, people in a, in a relational system, or there's a person that's anxious in a relationship. First, there's reactivity. And we see that clearly here. They're reacting. They're not thinking. They're not thinking logical. They're just reacting to the environment. Number two, there's a herding mentality. Right? So not only was there just one disciple that was anxious, they had already spread this anxiety to, to the 12 of them, right? They're, they're in the boat. Now they're all anxious. It's spread throughout. Now there's this herding instinct that this group of people is now all anxious about the same thing. We ever see that in our world? 
right? right? One person gets anxious about something, and they all kind of find each other, and no one wants to be alone in their anxiety, so they find other people who are also anxiety, anxious about the same thing. And now this group has some strength and has some power, and they move around trying to make other people anxious about something. Like, this is like social media, right? This is Twitter. It's Facebook. It's like outrage culture. It's, this is how things form. Like, anxiety catches on, and it's happening here with the disciples. And then you have blaming. Right? They're, they're blaming Jesus now that they're going to die. They're shifting all of their anxiety on him and saying, you do something about this. Fix our anxiety. Fix our emotional immaturity. Fix these things right now because we're dying. All those things are happening with the disciples. They rebuke Jesus. Right? And this is clearly as a result of the pressure of the situation and their anxiety. And again, if we were all being honest, we probably all would have acted in the same way. If we kind of didn't know what was causing this storm, and if we went overboard in this boat, that some sea monster is going to take us under. That was a legitimate concern of the people in that day and age. This also fits with the common experience of of when you're, maybe for sure parents in the room, right? Like when you're, when somebody's looking to you for leadership, or you have a leadership role in here, like oftentimes when people who are following or in more um, structured um, hierarchies, right? There's subordinates, right? When subordinates are feeling stressful, they often look up to the leader to do something about it. They want to take their anxiety and put it on the leader. How many times, and we've got an almost four-year-old and an almost eight, eight-year-old. I can't tell you how many times we get the, you're mean, or I hate you, or you're so, I mean, it's like they're anxious, they're, they're not dealing with their emotions, and it is lashing out at the leaders of the family, dad and mom, because they're not getting what they're wanting. They're transferring all of these emotions into our relationship, right? This is natural in that kind of follower-leader um, relationship. Let's look at verse 39. And he awoke. Jesus wakes up. He rebukes the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Verse 41, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So it seems like their anxiety calms down from the storm because Jesus calms it, but they're still afraid, right? And this is a more of a a healthy fear because now they're seeing who this person is. Not only did did the, the, the storm obeyed him, but now he's able to come in and just diffuse the anxiety. Like it just, he just comes and it's, and it's gone now. Right? So now they're feeling like, who, who is this? Who's, who's this guy who's able to, to come in and lead us in that way? And notice Jesus, he doesn't wake up and overreact. Right? He, he does, the, obviously he's the son of God, right? But he's a good model for us to show us how do we react in emotionally charged situation. When people are demanding us act and act quickly. He doesn't get caught up in the disciples' attempt to bring him into their anxiety with their question. Don't you care about us? Had Jesus reacted to that in any other way, kind of addressing that specific question, he probably, he could have defended himself. Like, how dare you? I'm God, right? Probably would have added more anxiety to the situation. There's all sorts of other ways he could have reacted that would have continued the anxiety in the relationships. But he provided a calm and steady presence, and he diffused the situation. And then he turns it back on their faith, right? He says, he goes to, he, he aims at their faith. Have you little faith? Do you believe in me? 
Do you trust in me? And we've seen for the first three weeks of this series that ultimately it all comes back to, do we trust God? Do we trust Jesus in what he says? Will we follow him into places we don't know where he's taking us? Uncertain futures, things that happen to us. So this idea of differentiation, knowing where we stop and that other person begins, I think is key. And one thing I want us to, to, to note here is that this idea of self-differentiation isn't being um, indifferent or, not, um, it's, or unemotional, right? You can still have emotions. You can still um, be engaged in the situation. But what it's doing is, is once again, it's saying, I know what I'm responsible for in this interaction, and I'm going to let you be responsible for what you're responsible for. And I'm not going to take on your anxiety and wear it as my own. What that person needs most, the way we bear that person's burdens most in that situation is to speak truth gently, is to be with them, to be present, to listen well, but not to enter their anxiety because then I'm unhealthy in that moment too, and it's not doing any good to the person who's actually gripped with anxiety. This is why we have to keep our distance emotionally to a certain extent, but be able to speak truth and love and serve them and listen to them well. So when we are put in these situations, how are we tempted to react? I want to go back to this story and just play out some different scenarios of how Jesus could have reacted. And I think we're going to see ourselves, hopefully, maybe how we would have reacted in this story if we were Jesus now. Not the disciples, if we were Jesus. Now, if he was kind of after power and control, someone comes to him with anxiety, he could have immediately, really not wanting to deal with the anxiety, just kind of bully him and shut him down. I'm God, how dare you question my sovereignty You little babies, be quiet, sit down, and stop whining. He could have done that, right? He's God. He could have reacted that way. He could have used his power and his position to shut it down. But how well had that have worked in the long term? Not well, right? The next time it would have happened, those disciples would have come nowhere close to Jesus. They would have ran, jumped out of the boat, because they they wouldn't want that tongue lashing again. Jesus didn't react that way. What if he wanted their approval? What if he was so like dependent upon them for their approval when they come to him with their anxiety? Guys, I know. I'm so sorry. I was just tired. You know, these crowds, they were really getting to me. And I was trying to catch a nap because I didn't get my eight hours last night. I'm really sorry, guys. Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? And, and just allow their anxiety to bully him over because he wanted their approval at all costs. Like kind of setting aside his need to lead them well. To, to develop them well as disciples and just allow them to walk all over him. Maybe it was comfort, right? He didn't want to deal with their anxiety. He also didn't want to have a hard conversation, maybe. So he maybe wakes up and says, I'm just going to go to the other end of the boat. Like, you're waking me up. I'm going to go to the other end of the boat. And the first time we hit shore, I'm going to get off, and I'm just going to kind of go spend some time alone because I really don't want to deal with this. I don't want to have hard conversations I'm just going to kind of pretend like this whole interaction didn't happen because this is making me feel really anxious, right? He could have reacted in all of those ways, but he didn't. And I think if one of, if you put ourselves in Jesus' shoes, maybe you kind of lean towards one of those places, right? When you're dealing with other people's anxiety. Here's another slide that I think helps us apply the gospel once again to the situation. Two questions. Um, Jesus died, so I don't have to blank anymore. Get that slide up there. Jesus, Jesus died and rose, so I don't have to blank anymore, whatever that answer is. 
or Jesus died, and that should say and rose, to free me from needing blank anymore. In those moments where we're most likely to um, react or not react um, in a healthy way, we're needing something that we, we, we think we need something that we don't really need. Maybe it's control. Maybe it's approval. Maybe it's uh, whatever it is. But we have to be able to fill in those blanks when we're dealing with these emotional environments. So maybe you, you're, you're in a situation where you're feeling anxious, right? Maybe you kind of, maybe the, the answer to yours, Jesus dies so I don't have to be right all the time. I don't have to always be the guy with the girl with the right answer. Maybe I don't always have to be the first one to speak because I don't like the silence and I just want to fill the room because I'm good at filling the room, right? Or maybe I don't have to be the last one to speak in a group in fear of saying something wrong because I really need to keep kind of my, my image intact. Maybe Jesus died so I don't have to avoid conflict because it's uncomfortable. I can move into conflict with some self-differentiation knowing that I can own what I have and this person needs to own what they need to own. Or maybe I don't have to try to control others' behavior anymore because I'm used to controlling my whole environment and that spills over into trying to control other people. Kind of like I was with Nicole with, our, with the whole punctuality thing of timing. I want to try to make her into my image and want her to see time by heaping on anxiety to make her, to make her speed up. Or Jesus died so I don't have to use people to feed an idol. I don't have to latch on to people to gain their approval or to have power over someone or to make myself be comfortable. See, we need to deal with these issues because anxiety is going to keep coming into our life even through other people if we're not careful. If we're going to be a community that helps one another fight anxiety, we must learn to differentiate ourselves and approach one another as Jesus would. That's, that's the goal. That's the thesis of today. Now, here's, here's some application. I want to I end with some practical things um, like we've done try, every time in the series, every week. We've tried to send you all out with something to think about because these are things that um, aren't going to happen overnight. This is a constant, consistent, growing process like anything is in life. We have to practice this. We have to remember this. I want us to remind us of the three things we um, talked about coming in today. Go to God. Know how the gospel applies to your anxiety and build habits in, cultivate habits, okay? So those things have to be said again because that should be a normal part of our rhythm as followers of Jesus. But here's a process as it directly relates to when we're feeling anxious in these moments around other people. Get good at recognizing when you are anxious. Our body will tip us off. Maybe you have a racing mind. Maybe you have like the pit in your stomach, like the sick feeling to your stomach. Maybe your heart rate starts beating fast when you get anxious. Maybe there's another physical response that you have when you find yourself in these situations. Right? Know it and just call it out. Hey, my body's telling me that I'm not right right now, that I'm, getting re- that, that I'm becoming reactive, and I'm not healthy in the moment to deal with these relationships. The next thing we do is slow down. Don't be reactionary. If you think back to all the conflict and especially the emotionally charged conflict in your relationships, the majority of the time, one of the reasons why it went, it escalated so quick is because you didn't slow down and you didn't think. You didn't think through it takes out. You didn't take a time out. You didn't think through what was going down. Don't immediately react. Slow down. 
Third, differentiate. We already talked about that. Know where you stop and that other person begins. Don't try to take on anxiety or problems that aren't yours to carry. Stay connected to others to help them work through their anxiety. Don't eject, right? We don't want to eject from the situation because we're afraid of dealing with it. No, we want to love people well through anxiety. And we should want people to love us well as we battle anxiety as well. And the last thing here, it's kind of separate, but I think this is a scary question to ask, but I would ask it. This will help you learn a lot about yourself. How, ask someone else who spends a lot of time around you that you do life with, how do you experience me in high emotionally stressed situations, right? Spouse is a great one. <laughs> Buckle up, right? Um, your, your, maybe your kids that are a little bit older, who can articulate that? Roommates, right? Um, yeah, and kids, if you're trying to work through this, ask your parents, right? Ask your parents how, maybe that's what you can ask them on this. Like help, let other people help and point out how you can grow in these areas. Nicole and I, one thing that we've done back to our kind of situation, one thing that we're continuing to get better at this and try to meet, other, meet each other halfway and, you know, trying to talk through um, kind of where we need to be at certain times. And I can offer, how can I help? Can I take something off your plate? Can I help? Um, serve you in a way that's going to help us be there on time. If that's a value for me, I can serve Nicole better to maybe do some things that she has to do before um, we leave. Another really quick way what we've done is just because we don't want to really have to deal with that anxiety, we maybe take two cars to different places, right? Like I'm happy and I get to like be there on time and Nicole doesn't get wrapped up in anxiety and she gets to go at her own pace well and, and we both show up where we're going in a much better state. Right? That's a way, too, that we're trying to say, okay, we don't always have to take the same car everywhere, especially with kids. Now that becomes really convenient, as you all know, as parents. Um, I want you to imagine this as we close. Um, oh, I want to say one more thing. Small groups. One thing that uh, I want to say is uh, one thing we, we want to do as a church is live in community with one another. And if you've been in community or our gospel communities in the church, this is very relevant, Right? A lot of the anxiety-producing issues um, in GC are uh, as follows. How are we going to pastor and shepherd our kids in this GC? Different opinions, different values. How do we approach that being a non-anxious presence? Right? What, what are we going to go through as a group? What's our content going to be? How are we going to spend our time? What time are we going to start? What time are we going to end? Are we going to be punctual? When we say we're going to start, we're going to start. When we say we're going to end, we're going to end. Right? Our different views of functionality come in, and anxiety can build within a community, right? How, how much time are we going to spend around those who don't know Jesus? How much time are we going to spend around those who are inside the church in our GC, right? Why, what are we going to do about food, right? All of these things begin to produce anxiety when there's disagreement. But if the closer we move to one another, that system becomes stronger relationally, which means when something, someone is anxious in that system, everyone's going to feel it. And so we have to deal with those things well. We need to be calm. We need to be present. We need to give others the benefit of the doubt. We need to not overreact too quickly and work through those things in an emotionally mature way. Now, closing, back to where I was going before. Um, imagine if you're in an apartment here and you're, you're, you have a bunch of roommates. Imagine if anxiety could be kind of um, um, could be contained at an individual level and not spread through your friend group. Imagine how you would be able to kind of help each other go through that in, those seasons of anxiety in a healthy position rather than all get wrapped up in anxiety at the same time. 
Imagine your family, um, your family system not passing blame around the house when you're anxious. Like when I get anxious, I don't like it. What do I want to do? I want to find someone to blame that on, for sure internally, and sometimes that comes out. Maybe on the kids, well, I just need you to, I'm really anxious, I just need you to go to the other room and play by yourself. Right? Often parent out of just wanting my anxiety to stop, so I, I want to focus on someone else so I don't have to deal with my own stuff. Right? Imagine if families were to not blame one another for their anxiety. Imagine churches where groups um, or herds of people didn't get together to make, ever, make themselves feel anxious about something that's happening in the church or a section of um, the, the church is in our country maybe. Maybe what if people could step in and stop that cycle with a calm and stable presence? As we saw in Romans 12, love is the guiding command of how we relate to one another. And if we're going to be a community who loves one another well and loves the world well, even when things are hard and it's hard to feel like loving people, to making that decision to love people, we must learn to differentiate ourselves and approach people and love people how Jesus did. 